Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear a somewhat lighthearted episode inspired by my friend Daniele's History on Fire podcast series on the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire. I thought it would be fun to explore some related themes like mythology, human sacrifice, and cannibalism, and this is just a little intro episode to kick things off. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing to my Substack page, where you'll find supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes available to subscribers for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To all of you who are already contributing, I really appreciate you allowing me to do what I do. You can find the Substack at martyrmade.substack.com. Without further ado, here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? So this is definitely not how I intended to start this series off. Let's just begin with that. I had a few too many Bloody Marys with breakfast this morning, and I'm still feeling that pretty strongly. And this is not so much a fully prepared episode as it is a very long introduction to what I'm going to be doing over the next few months. It seems like every project that I put my hand to, the same thing happens. It always ends up growing into this monster that I can't control. And before I know it, instead of, of digging into one topic that I wanted to talk to you guys about, I'm trying to solve some ancient human problem that people infinitely smarter than me have been banging their heads against for centuries as if I'm going to unlock the hidden, you know, the hidden secret to it or something, but I, I can't help it. It just seems to be the way my brain works. And so I've got a few notes here, uh, but this is going to be very informal. I'm going to be winging this half drunk with you guys because I've got a little bit more work to do on the first real episode, but I wanted to check in and kind of let you know what I got cooking. See, I've got this really bad habit that makes getting these episodes out to you guys in a timely manner very difficult, if you hadn't noticed. I usually pull out the excuse that, you know, unlike many of the other podcasters maybe on your playlist, I've got a full-time day job and, and takes up most of my time. And that's true, that is true, but the truth is I still probably manage to put in at least as many hours per day as anybody else that I know that does this kind of stuff. That's not really the issue. The real problem is that I have not learned and I have tried, but I've not learned at all. If any of you other podcasters that end up listening to this have some tips for me, I'd love to hear it. I have not learned at all how to restrict the scope of these discussions so that I don't fall into this trap of mission creep, you know, where it just expands and expands. And we'll take the last series I did, Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem. It was a series on the Arab-Israeli conflict. When I started that, that was supposed to be one or two episodes, maybe an hour or two apiece. That's what I thought. And I thought that 
two, maybe one or two episodes of an hour or two apiece were going to take me from the beginning of the story where I did start all the way up to the present day, right? So six episodes and 25, 26 hours later, I'd managed to tell the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict only up to the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948. And even then, there's still a ton of stuff that I had to skim over or just leave out altogether that felt like cutting off one of my arms. It felt completely vital, even with the length that that thing ended up being. It turns out that the more I investigate a topic, any topic it seems like, instead of having more to say about it, you know, instead of having more to say the more I know, I end up having less and less and less that I feel like I can say with any confidence at all. When I'd, when I'd read six books on, on the Arab-Israeli conflict, just stay away from me. I, it was like, you know, if you ventured too close to me, I'd sit you down and explain the whole history of the conflict and, and what it all meant and whose fault everything was and what should be done about it. And I would just, if you were unlucky enough to venture into my vicinity and be patient enough to listen to me talk, I mean, it was just not a good idea. You know, I had all the answers when I'd read six books about it. By the time I'd read my 60th book on it, you know, I was in a place feeling like the issue is so complicated that you can't understand anything about it at all without taking it all the way back to fundamental questions about human sociability and, and social identity and group dynamics and psychology. I mean, it, it just keeps growing and growing. But people who show up for a discussion of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict presumably wouldn't have a lot of patience for dry lectures on those abstract ideas, certainly not for me. You know, but I just, I tend to have a really hard time figuring out which layer to draw that line under. You know, you, you, you work your way down and, and you say, well, you know, ideas and customs and uh, our modes of daily interaction, society, our habits of life, all these things that kind of make up our cultural milieu, all of these build on one another like a pyramid. Each layer above it is dependent on the layer below it being fully secure and in place. Now when we look at a pyramid, our eye is naturally drawn by the outline up the sides toward the peak, and then maybe from there vaulted up into the sky, up into the heavens, to, to some star or constellation or, or dwelling place of the dead to which we imagine the thing is, is pointing, right? Because you know, that might even be the point of the shape of a pyramid, to draw us upward like that. We rarely spend much time in wonder or contemplation or awe over the base of the pyramid or those middle layers that, that are almost there just to hold up that peak at the top. You know, that's the way we, we treat it sometimes. Even though the lower levels are, are closer to all of us and, uh, and the base does more to set the parameters of the overall structure than any section built above it. I'm kind of stretching this analogy, but again, I, I, I'm not talking really about a, a literal pyramid. I, well... The ideas that form the base, right, this, this cultural pyramid, this pyramid of ideas, the ideas that form the base are the ones that we don't even think about because they're so self-evident and, and they're so fundamental to this particular version of the world that we've built out for ourselves. When you get yourself up to the top of the pyramid, the, the, this pyramid of ideas or, or cultural pyramid, maybe it's crowned by a lofty idea like universal human rights, for example, right? We'll use universal human rights. By the time you get up to something like universal human rights, that that could even pop into somebody's head in your culture, you're already standing on the shoulders of ideas that were in their own time, in their own day of novelty, 
They, they were world historical achievements of the human race. At some point, if you trace our line of development back far enough, we had to figure out, and I mean this on a, a very fundamental cognitive level, we had to figure out how to abstract the idea of the human out from actual instances of individual humans, right? That, that didn't come naturally to us. We didn't climb out of the trees onto the savanna and naturally have the ability to, to draw an abstract concept, concept out from the particularities that way. It was something we had to learn how to do over a long period of time. And when we did, I mean, this was a tremendous achievement. And it's an antecedent to something like universal human rights. We don't even think about the fact that first you have to be able to abstract out the idea of the human to even think about something like abstract human, uh, rather universal human rights. But we did, and we had to go through that at some point. It's one of those lower levels of the pyramid, right? So we had to be able to posit the idea of abstract values, good, bad, right, wrong, and so forth. We had to abstract those out from their attachment to a given event or circumstance or person or thing, right? That bad thing, that good person. We had to be able to abstract the principle of the good or the principle of bad out. That didn't come naturally. We had to learn that. A whole mountain of axioms, of a priori axioms, had to be drilled into us so deeply and so firmly that they were completely solid and seemed unquestionable and self-evident before we could build anything on top of it. And as you move from the top down toward the base of the pyramid, I might be stretching this analogy a little bit now, the consequences of destabilizing it, of beginning to question things, become more and more serious the lower you go. You start asking questions about how the base is put together, and suddenly everything above it starts shifting around. And that's kind of what happens when I start looking into a topic like, uh, like I am here, the Mesoamerican civilization, the Aztecs, and the confrontation with the Spanish. I can study Aztec mythology for an explanation of the role human sacrifice played in their society, for example. That's maybe up at the top of the pyramid. But once I'm down at the level of asking fundamental questions about their social forms and, and their individual psychology, then all the consciously conjured explanations start to look secondary and almost superfluous. And so sure enough, once I started going really hard on a lot of the topics involved here, I started getting pulled down into that vortex where, you know, I start out reading an anthropology book specifically about Aztec sacrifice. And by the time I look up for my reading, I'm on my third book about developmental psychology. You know, something that is absolutely vital to understanding sacrifice, I think. But, it, you know, at a certain point, if you have a mind like mine, you end up having to take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden and work your way, or the Big Bang, and work your way up from there because everything seems completely important when you start getting down that deep. Dealing with the Aztecs makes me particularly vulnerable to this, not just because I've been fascinated with, with uh, Mesoamerican culture for a long time, but because to a modern Westerner, the Aztecs are so profoundly alien that it's very difficult not to be pulled into basic questions about what it means to be a human being. I'm starting this off this way because I think that there's a tendency partly natural and partly ideological, to imagine that peoples of different cultures in past ages were more or less just like us, 
only with different ideas maybe that, you know, different beliefs that informed their, their ways of life. I don't think that that is true. I don't believe that at all, actually. In fact, I'm going to make the case over the next few episodes that the consciously held beliefs, the things that people will tell you they believe, you know, their religious doctrines and so forth, those are way up at the top of the pyramid. And you could honestly change a lot of them back and forth, and you would not see a, a tremendous structural change in a culture. By the time you get up to the consciously held and outwardly spoken beliefs, you know, those are, it's like shaving a couple inches off the top of that thing. You know, the, the differences between cultures, the things that really make cultures different, are far deeper. You know, an alien peoples, especially a culture as isolated and as profoundly alien as the Mesoamericans are to us, I think that these cultures are producing profoundly different kinds of human beings. And I have to unpack that a little bit because, well, I have to unpack what I mean by it and, and the extent to which I take it seriously because, you know, for one thing, it's a statement that is not without controversial political baggage, you know, but, but also because it's going to inform the way that I approach this great world historical confrontation between the Aztecs and the Spanish as we move through this series of episodes. You know, many people would hear me say that peoples of past cultures are profoundly different uh, from us, and they would interpret that as a slur somehow. But I think that that tells us a lot about how this particular point of ideology functions. The propagators of this kind of universalistic mainstream ideology in the West today have kind of pulled a very interesting jiu-jitsu trick. You see, we decided somewhere along the line, very remarkably if you look at history, I don't know if there are too many parallels to this, but we decided to disavow our own past of, you know, our own history of conquest and colonization and, and to replace the false glory of that past with this universalist religion based on tolerance and human rights and some of the accessories that go with those things, right? Well, down at the core of that ideology is a deep belief that people everywhere are pretty much the same. Now, conveniently for our geopolitical goals, I think, and for our own cultural self-understanding, we interpret that, the idea that, that everybody everywhere is pretty much the same, we interpret that to mean that everyone is just like us and must in their heart of hearts, if they were free to express it or if they just had things explained to them properly, that they would want what we want and value what we value. They're just like us. And so, of course, the next thing you know, we're invading countries so that their people can be free to express their true inner nature, which we imagine must be that of a docile progressive Democrat from New Hampshire or something. You know, former President George W. Bush's defense secretary, Donald Rumsfeld, he promised us that when we went into Iraq, we were going to be greeted with flowers in the streets by grateful people. And while there was, I'm sure, some willful blindness and probably a little cynicism in that claim, I don't think he was just lying because it reflects a bias that's very common on both the left and the right in the United States. Simply put, there is only one kind of human being. We have identified that type and we best exemplify it. It's true nature, right? And deviations from post-1960s Western norms, wherever they're found in history or around the world today, we don't take them on their own terms, but try to figure out, even if we don't put it this way, what's wrong with them. If we see people throughout history that are profoundly different from us, that requires explanation. 
Now, of course, there are a lot of ways in which we're all similar, um, especially with regard to our outward behavior. You'll often hear people point out that people everywhere just want to make a living and take care of their families, and yeah, sure, true enough. But how far does that really get us? Those drives are not even uniquely human. The desire to procure a living from the earth and to care for your kin group, that's at least universal to social mammals, and you can actually trace it back much further than that. So it doesn't give us a lot of information about ourselves. You're talking about the very base of the pyramid when you talk about things like that. And actually, that's another feature of the pyramid, uh, although, you know, let me switch the metaphor up because that one's starting to lose its purpose. I was about to say that the lower you move down the pyramid, the more people share whatever's found at each successive level, but instead, let's think of it as a tree. And the trunk consists of those things that you share with all mankind. And then a major branch is what you share with your culture, and a smaller offshoot is what you share with your particular society, and it's more and more finely articulated until you've run through the levels of social identification until you're talking about the twigs and leaves that are the small cultural universes you share with, you know, with family and other local affiliations. And, and then finally, maybe pictured as the flower or the fruit of the entire production, the one-person culture, you know, the, the, the one-person little culture world that we call your individual inner life. This is the way to understand what the great psychologist Carl Jung meant when he spoke of the archetypes of the collective unconscious. That idea, the collective unconscious, it often gets twisted up into this sort of new-agey myth, as if it's this metaphysical realm of platonic forms that somehow impress themselves upon us. They, they have an independent existence somewhere, and they're impressing themselves into the mind. That's not at all what he meant. Jung was a very rigorous thinker, and that's not how he, he was that's not what he was talking about. The collective unconscious is not one thing. It exists at each level of social identification. Okay, there's a constellation of symbols and meanings that you share with all mankind, and then others that you share only with your family, and then everything in between. And each of those are a type of collective unconscious. This is mostly the result of experiences that you share with people at each level, and it allows social communion of more or less depth and detail depending on the symbolic vocabulary you share with each level. So what I mean is, if you meet an absolute stranger, right, somebody from another continent completely, you know, it could be somebody just a million miles away from you culturally, linguistically, everything. If you meet an absolute stranger dying of thirst or crying out in pain, you'll find that you're perfectly able to understand his attempts to communicate with you and that you can actually respond in a way that closes the loop of that interaction very naturally. You'll be able to do that because you're dealing with experiences that are absolutely universal to humans. But to be able to see through, say, an outward display of contentment to know that what somebody really needs is a hug. They might be smiling and, and seeming happy, but they're, they're actually sad and they need a hug. That might only work for very close family members, right, with whom you can communicate in a much more, a much richer, more detailed, nuanced way because you share a constellation of symbols and a, and a vocabulary of meaning that is much deeper. So again, for all of our cultural differences, there are many experiences that are fundamental or, or seem to be fundamental to the human condition that provide something like, I don't know, an initial operating system into which the culture comes along and loads its applications. 
uh, a Mr. Analogy today. We'll we'll see how all these go. So I'm thinking of I'm thinking of universals like oh the trauma of being pushed out of the birth canal, right? Or of having to traverse that terrifying gap between the unified experience of early infancy, right? Very early on when your sense of self when your perception of your mother and the rest of the world, that's all still one thing. It hasn't been differentiated out. So you've got this feeling of connectedness and oneness with everything. When all you have to do is cry out and just make a noise. If you're hungry, ah, just make a noise and a nipple appears and now you're not hungry anymore. I mean, it's just the omnipotence of that. This is what Freud thought was the root of all magical thinking, but that's going to be in a future episode. And so to traverse that gap between the experience of total unity and, and complete omnipotence to first starting to notice that, you know, sometimes you cry out and nothing happens. What's up with that? And then that's followed by this horrible realization. Traumatic. It's a truly traumatic realization that you and your mother, which you hadn't quite differentiated before as separate creatures, you know, the, your mother, who at this point in your life, as far as you know, is the source of all warmth and nourishment and affection and everything that you everything important to your survival that you two are actually separate beings and she's got her own will that has nothing to do with you she's got other beings in her life that concern her perhaps as much as you do realizing that you've got to compete for your mother's attention and that one of your competitors is this gigantic male who is much more complicated to relate to than she is you know, this is your basic Oedipus complex or process, Oedipus process, I would prefer to say. And, and this is all very basic Freudian psychology. But the reason it's basic is that it's more or less common to more or less everybody. You don't have to sexualize it like Freud does to get the basic idea. You know, and you can keep carrying it on up through infancy and early childhood. You can, you can take this through life. There are certain things that we share. You can keep going through the experience as a small child of being fully dependent on and surrounded by these giants who, as far as you can tell, are basically all-powerful. You know, how else is a small child supposed to understand beings that were there from the very beginning, as far as, as far as they know, who control the environment that they inhabit, who is the source of all their food and water and clothing and everything else that's important, who, if they wanted to, could just pick you up and throw you across the room or end your life if they chose by force or just through simple neglect. They could forget about you and you would die. You gotta navigate that as a small child. You gotta figure out how to do that. And there's no instruction manual. And everybody has to do that, no matter where you are or when you were born. By the time we get to be adults, we're not really so impressed by adults anymore because we look at ourselves and we're like, ugh, I hope this is not what all the fuss was about. But it's hard to overstate how large adults loom in the young child's world, you know, as it's just starting to learn what a world is and, and what this one happens to be like. And so then, of course, we have the experience of having to navigate the moods of these giants and how to manipulate them to get what you need from them and so forth. I mean, these are very basic human experiences that everybody from a Paleolithic hunter-gatherer to a Wall Street banker have shared. And there's information there that we can extract. And all those early childhood experiences, remember, these are happening not after your ego has been consolidated and filled out. So it's not as if somebody plucked you today out of your house and dropped you among, you know, giant creatures that you had to figure out how to relate to. No, no, no. This is all happening before you even have a coherent self-concept or personality or, or any behavioral models 
that you can kind of follow to, to help you navigate any of this. In fact, this is the process that creates all of those things for you. And so there is going to be a substratum of human experience that serves as a more or less universal, say, foundation on which the culture can build its unique human adult subjects. And then, so you keep going, you think of the period when culture begins to take the reins from nature. Or, or maybe you could say nature quarries the stone and drags it over to the building site, and then culture takes over with a hammer and chisel to you know, start to work on your, on your unique features. Adolescence is this period where nature and culture both seem to have a hand very firmly on our shoulders, right? As we're experiencing awakening sexuality and, and our aggressive drives begin to become more dangerous than just a little child's tantrum, now we begin to interact with the culture in the form of taboos and customs that repress and sublimate and structure our sexual and aggressive motivations in a mode that hopefully, you know, if, if everything goes the way it's supposed to, it structures our sexual and aggressive motivations in a way that allows them to be expressed within a pro-social framework. Because, you know, human aggressive and, and sexual drives can tear a social body apart if you don't learn how to structure them. And you can keep on going on and on from, you know, through the, the transition from dependency on the society to responsibility for the society to the dawning awareness of your own death and then of the insubstantial and temporary nature of the things that draw your attraction and attachment through life. You know, these are primordial experiences that, that give rise first to behaviors and then to symbols and narrative. And narrative is just the means by which we string symbols together and sort of, sort of alchemically meld them into various mythological alloys. And then straight on to abstract concepts that, that, that can be stated theoretically. You know, these are the three fundamental modes of human cognition and learning. A very young child first learns through, through mimesis, right, by, by mimicking the behavior of others. A child learns to speak by mimicking the speech of others, for example. And it turns out that different things are more easily learned in different modes and more easily communicated in different modes. If I wanted to teach a kid to tie his shoes, for example, I'm not going to break that down theoretically for him. I don't even know what that would look like. I don't know how that would work. I, I'm going to primarily use mimesis. Just have them get their own shoe and watch me and copy what I do until they can replicate it on their own. That's the easiest way to teach someone to tie shoes. And maybe I'll reinforce it with a little bit of you know symbolic mythological language, let's say. I remember some version of this from when I was a kid, and, and parents today still help, help their children learn to tie shoes with these little rhymes. I don't know if you remember anything like this, but you tell a kid to make a little bunny ear out of each lace and hold one in each hand, and then you say, bunny ears, bunny ears, playing by a tree, crisscross the tree, trying to catch me. Bunny ears, bunny ears, jumped to the hole, popped out the other side, beautiful and bold. There's a lot of kids that learn how to tie their shoes that way. Through a combination of mimicking, watching somebody and just copying them, and then having an easily memorable sort of mental ditty in their head, they can kind of keep them on track. It's a combination of mimetic learning and symbolic mythological learning, let's say. And it might sound silly to call that a myth, but it's not as silly as it sounds. I think. I, when European explorers first started to come across these very, very primitive 
aborigines in various parts of the world. They often found that they had religions, if you insist on calling them that. I don't, you, you don't want to call them religions. They're really not, but let's not get distracted by that right now. So their, their religions seem so primitive precisely because they're so practical and particular. And we often find that uh, these, these very, very primitive tribes that we come across, uh, that their, their rituals and their myths mostly have very direct day-to-day -day concerns having to do with preserving the technical and environmental and social knowledge that they'd accumulated so far. You know, everything you can think of, how to butcher game, how to make baskets, how to cook various foods, how to find water and draw water properly, anything you can think of that's just a part of daily life was a ritual act that had a corresponding myth explaining in story form how the first instance of that act was performed in the world. For pedagogical purposes, probably these, these instances, these stories were strung together into a larger story that was easier to remember if you just tied it all together into one thing and easier to pass down. So, you know, to go back to the example I just used, maybe it's a little weak, I'm not sure, but you get the point. To go back to the example I just used with the bunny ears, maybe I want to teach you how to tie shoes and how to tie a necktie, right? And so maybe you would tie two similar narratives together and say, bunny ears, bunny ears, playing by a tree, crisscrossed the tree, trying to catch me, bunny ears, bunny ears, jumped into the hole, popped out the other side, beautiful and bold. But then you might follow it up with, I climbed up the tree to look out on the lake, and what did I find but a big fat snake? So it's like you've climbed up the body to the neck, and the tie is a snake hanging there, and then maybe you go through some permutations where the snake chases you through the motions of tying a necktie, say, right? So it's a trivial example, but... Very early primitive mythologies are full of this kind of thing. Scholars like uh, Eric Havelock at the University of Toronto, uh, he found similar things even in the Iliad. Uh, we're we're going to have a whole section in a future episode on that. But, uh, or another, the great professor of religious studies, Mircea Eliade, wrote extensively on how these very early mythologies described how various firsts came into the world. That's, that's really what most of them were. Like, how did, it, it was either, how did this river come into being? How did clouds come into being? Why do magpies have a stripe on their back? Or why do we cook things a certain way? How do we make baskets? And so forth. And uh, he, he describes, Eliade describes how, how basically these are providing models for the people in these societies to follow. Ancient mythologies from Africa to Australia to the New World are all full of the refrain, and this is why we build huts as we do, or this is why we make baskets to this day as we do, and so forth. And in its true form, it's not trivial at all. It's the least trivial thing you can imagine. You know, the vast majority of what these people needed to know about the world, and, and really this is still true, is learned more easily through mimesis and narrative than it is by theory. If I want to tell you how to tie your shoes over the phone... I, you know, yeah, over the phone. So we're talking on the phone, and I want to tell you how to tie your shoes, and you don't have shoes in front of you, and neither do I. I would actually have to think about that for a second. I would have to visualize it in my mind, and even then, it's kind of hard to keep track of what I'm what I'm doing. You know, you take the right lace and loop it in front of the left lace, and then back around to come through the space that they form. And even here, I'm I'm already turning it into a narrative, right? Talking about the laces forming spaces and so forth. It's not easy to take something like that and just explain it theoretically. Certain modes of communication and cognition lend themselves to certain things. 
And if you don't have shoes right in front of you to follow along as I speak, but instead have to remember the whole thing until later on when you do have your shoes, it's probably not going to happen. But if I tell you to take a lace in each hand, fold it over into bunny ears, and then tell you that rhyme from earlier, you'd probably remember it well enough to figure it out on your own after a few tries. For us moderns, these three modes of cognition are so natural and so intertwined that they usually just melt together. We take all of them for granted. But understanding that they are, in fact, separate modes is extremely important. I can't teach you psychology through embodied mimesis. I can teach you a very deep psychology through narrative, though. You read a good book by, you know, Dostoevsky or Camus or Roth, and you're learning psychology. But to take the knowledge contained in all those novels and break it down into abstract concepts, now you have to be able to deal in theoretical thinking. Psychology is an interesting example because just like the shoe tying example that draws on mimetic and narrative thinking, psychology moves between narrative and theoretical thinking so naturally that I'd say both are probably indispensable. You might lay out a psychological concept, but inevitably it's going to be followed by some kind of narrative example of how it plays out through a person's behavior. If I want to explain what obsessive-compulsive disorder is, I might pull out a textbook and say, obsessive-compulsive disorder is a condition in which blah, 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 whatever. And maybe you'll get some idea of it, but then I'll tell you a story about someone who washes his hands a hundred times a day, and then that narrative crystallizes it for you and gives the theory some shape. And since you'll actually envision in your mind the person engaging in the hand-washing behavior while I'm actually talking about it, there's actually a shade of mimesis in there as well, since you're modeling the behavior internally as you listen. But, you know, so we move back and forth between these three modes, focusing on whichever mode is most appropriate for the subject at hand and for the developmental stage of the person that we're talking to. Because that's the other part of this. On one hand... Some kinds of knowledge or understanding are more easily expressed in a given mode. But people also pass through these stages as their individual subjectivity is filled out. You can't very well teach a child anything through narrative or theory until it's learned language through mimesis. And until it's been sufficiently socialized by imitating the behavior of adults and, and older children, right? And from there, you don't move straight into philosophical ethics or abstract theology if you want to teach them how to behave. You start giving them models of behavior through fairy tales and religious stories and so forth. You have to progress through these stages in that order because they represent developmental levels of abstraction. First, you learn how to act in the world. Then you learn how to represent and model action through narrative and and, and to learn and absorb new behavioral models through language alone, and then, finally, you learn to extract concepts and principles from those particularities. And then, not just individuals, but you can back it out a little further, our social groups, human beings as as groups, had to make our way through these stages as well. Again, we didn't just climb out of the trees onto the savanna and start speculating about the nature of love or the fundamental substance of the universe. That's not how it worked. The aboriginal groups I mentioned a minute ago had completely different problems to solve. And few, if any of them, required abstract theoretical cognition very early on. You know, think about it. 
a Paleolithic band of hunter-gatherers. Take, take a group like that and consider what they need to know in order to make their way in the world. They've got to remember how to start fires, how to cook food, how to find water, how to fish, how to make baskets. You know, Maybe their local group is 50, 100 individuals. So it's very plausible that they could forget these things if they're not really taking steps to make sure that they're reinforced. And so the ritual cycle of these very simple band societies, you, you know, you wouldn't want to call the ritual cycle secular, certainly not, but, but their focus tends to be very practical. Very often when anthropologists and ethnographers ask such people why they do things a certain way, you know, why do you make baskets this way? Why do you do the following a certain way? They, they often, this has always fascinated me, they get this puzzled look and, and some version of, because this is how our people do it, as if no other explanation is necessary or even imaginable. Because why would those people ever have needed to articulate it beyond that? Language itself evolves and expands to meet the specific needs of a people, and as it expands, it's pushing out the walls and filling in the details of their cultural world and each individual's subjective inner life. And I want to say that again because I think it's very important. You know, we, we started off when we did climb out of the trees onto the savanna, when we first started speaking. And I don't know how that exactly played out, whether it was first through commands or, or who knows. But we started with a very small vocabulary and thus a very, very limited and dim subjectivity. And as the language expanded to meet our new needs, our internal cognitive world and the cultural world that we all share expanded and filled out as well. And we create our cultures, and our cultures create us. And for most of us, we receive a lot more than we put in. When we think of culture, we usually think of art and architecture, music and dance, you know, religion and ritual. But, but those things aren't interesting just for their own sake. The social purpose of all that stuff is to serve as a kind of substrate in which a certain kind of human being can grow and thrive. The shared biological and early developmental experiences at the very base of that pyramid that I started off with, those experiences provide the raw material, but most of what makes us interesting is informed by culture. And so, let me, let me rephrase that. Most of what makes us different is informed by culture. And so we wonder how wide the field is for possible modes of individual and shared human experience. How different can we be? You know, we all know that we're working off of fairly similar biological and, and, and sort of developmental substructure, but the superstructure we build on top of that, 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 that culture constructs for us, and, and, and the inner life that culture informs for us, how different can those things be? I think they can be very very radically different. You know, we know, for example, certainly that the inner life of an individual comes in all shapes and sizes. The interior world of a person peeking on psilocybin mushrooms is a very different world from that of somebody that's soberly commuting to the office on a Wednesday morning. We know that dreaming is nothing like waking life, and yet Nevertheless, it's an entirely convincing experience while it's happening. 
We know that people living with autism or schizophrenia are not just behaviorally affected, but that their subjectivity itself is somehow profoundly alien to common experience in the profane world for most of us. If you really want some examples of the far reaches of the worlds we build out for ourselves, go read some of Oliver Sacks' books. You know, Dr. Sacks was this neurologist, brilliant neurologist, who frequently encountered people with all... I mean, it really opens your eyes to how widely our subjective experience can vary on the individual level. One patient that he, that he writes about in one of his books, his nervous system was under attack by a virus, and so he had lost all memory except of music and his wife. He could play the piano, and he knew and recognized his wife. And then the things that he had learned through mimicry, right? So uh, he could play the piano. He could still speak. He could do certain motor function things. He could... Uh, you know, he could use a pencil and he could do these behavioral things that he had learned in a behavioral way. But conceptual memories, it's, all of it was gone. And on top of that, he had lost his ability to create any new memories. Okay? Every 30 seconds or so, and any new experiences he had were completely gone. And suddenly he'd be overcome by this sensation, absolutely convincing and emotionally overwhelming. He'd be overcome by the sensation, or, or you might even say, he was overcome by this revelation that he had only just now, for the first time ever, become conscious. Every 30 seconds or so, he would be overwhelmed by this feeling. And, you know, it became an obsession for him. And finally, he's filling up dozens of journals with notes to himself, like 8.31 a.m. Now I am really completely awake. And then that line is crossed out and followed by another entry, 9.06 a.m. Now I am perfectly, overwhelmingly awake. And then that's crossed out, followed by 9.34 a.m. Now I am superlatively actually awake. And so on, Sachs writes, quote, Every few minutes the rapture of having just become conscious would overwhelm him and compel him to record the moment. A few times, when he couldn't find the diary right away, he grabbed a pen and recorded his epiphany on walls or furniture. But since he'd only just woken up, just now, old entries were clearly fake. Hence he struck them out, end quote. You know, the thing to keep in mind is that this is not just a guy outwardly exhibiting odd behaviors. There is an interior subjective experience that goes along with those behaviors. To ask what it would take for somebody to behave that way, you have to ask, what is his inner life like? It's not like yours and mine. Sachs worked with uh, another man who had had brain surgery, and afterward... He had no feeling at all for his family, including his wife and daughters. Nothing. He felt nothing for them. But he suddenly felt overwhelming trust and love and affection for every stranger he met. Uh, Sachs wrote an article in Lancet a few years ago, and um, he wrote up a case study of this woman who, when she looked at human faces, she would, sh she would see them transform into dragons before her eyes, complete with pointy ears, black or green scaly skin, you know, large eyes and a protruding snout. I mean, she would see it, and it was absolutely convincing. As real as anything else, as far as her, you know, her, her senses were concerned. Sometimes she would just hallucinate dragons floating toward her in the darkness or hiding in cracks and corners and stuff like that. And Now, she'd grown up in a culture that gave her a set of baseline assumptions against which she could compare her vision of dragons, right? So she could recognized that this was a strange experience and that maybe she needed to get some help. But the images themselves were working overtime to go right by her critical thinking, you know, impressing their 
actual reality on her very powerfully. They were that convincing. And so what would it have been like if she had not been born into a culture that said there's no such thing as dragons? What if she'd been born into a culture where dragons were completely expected to exist? Or that the possibility was at least allowed for? And maybe in that case, uh, she just lives in a world where sometimes people turn into dragons. And sometimes dragons come to visit her and just, that's that. That's how the world works. And maybe the tendency to see something like that in, in a society like that would be a little bit less repressed. So you get a subgroup of magical seers who are all able to detect the dragons when they're around. Or, you know, let's let's try something closer to home maybe for, for most of us today. We all live in a culture where we're taught about this phenomenon called thinking. We all know what thinking is. We're taught about it. And we're taught that the little voice in our head is something called a thought. Right? And so we're not alarmed when a little voice in our head starts speaking, even though all we really know, all we subjectively experience is that there's a voice in our head speaking to us. We don't know where it's located. We don't know where the content of what it's saying comes from because it's not like we're able to select our thoughts before they come. Well, imagine you grew up in a culture where all you had ever been told Right From the time you, you crawled out of the womb, all you'd ever been told was that that voice in your head is a god or a spirit communicating with you. How would you know any different? You know, what basis would you have to even speculate differently? And how would that affect your entire understanding and subsequent experience in the world? And I think we have to recognize that if you had grown up like that, you would not just be the same person you are now, except that, you know, you mistakenly believe that you communicate with gods and spirits. Your entire orientation in the world would be radically different. Your entire idea of how the world works and how it's structured, you know, not just your behaviors or conscious beliefs, but the very structure of your, of your subjective inner world would be altered by the assumption, for example, that, that there was no inner private chamber in your mind that, that was private kept to yourself, but that your being was somehow porous, that was being prodded and spoken to and penetrated by these other beings that could crawl into your, into your, you know, into your mind. You'd be living in a reality populated with these hidden beings that interacted regularly with you in your daily life and kind of directed you around and, and told you what to do. How different would your entire world picture and, and the world picture of your people have developed if that one explanation for a general experience, an explanation that is as good as any other for a Paleolithic people, really, if, if that one thing had been changed. Even with modern neuroscience and psychology, we are far from being able to tell you why your consciousness is structured just the way it is, or why one thought is presented to the mind instead of some other thought. I mean, you have to resort to phenomenology to get any reasonable or even plausible take on why and how we select from among the various sense data that are out there choosing and discarding from among this just this infinite soup of incoming information to, to build a world in which we can meaningfully act. Let alone, we, we don't even understand that. We don't even come close to understanding this, this thing that, you know, this, this way that we jack into each other's minds and share a symbolic world that we call our culture. This is very complicated stuff, and we don't understand it very well. We asked what culture was before we discussed how widely individual human experiences can vary. You know, human beings share the innate sociability of other great apes, but 
With the advent of language, we discovered a whole new realm of social life that is completely inaccessible to other animals. It's inaccessible to all flesh, if you want to put it that way. Right? This, this new cultural world. Animals can, can wrestle and chase each other around and interact in, in, in those various ways. But human beings have opened out into this entirely new realm of experience where you know, we, we, we all are sort of locked into this linguistic cultural world now where we can tell each other stories, we can create and bat around concepts with one another, we can come up with mathematics, we can, we can you know, and share experiences that we've had, we can, all of these things that, that we can interact with other human beings on a completely different plane now. And we said that culture is not just the art and architecture and so forth, but that these are only culture's outward markers, and, and we build a physical culture around us kind of like a, I don't know, like a symbolic biodome, right? Where uh, children are all reared on certain stories. They're reared in dwellings that are organized both internally and relative to one another in ways that imply a certain family and community arrangement. You know, there are going to be certain styles of entertainment and art that carry information, not just in their content, but in their form, right? The point of all this is to create a certain kind of human being and to make sure that that human type survives over time. Everything grows. All, all these individual manifestations grow out of a budding cultural soul, and those outward manifestations are all fragmentary symbols of that soul. You can reverse-engineer those manifestations to get a glimpse into what those people were like. And I think the most engaging thing about history for me, the thing that really woke me up and, and brought the world beyond my immediate concerns out into the light for me, was realizing that everything, everything is a symbol. Everything is, is, uh, is a shard of glass from the window into someone else's soul. You know, it matters that the first axiom of Western philosophy is, I think, therefore I am. Putting the subjective experience of the atomic individual at the center of everything, that matters. It matters that that same culture rejected the social institutions of the Catholic Church as the means of salvation, instead looking to the individual human conscience. And it's not a coincidence that this individualistic culture discovered and perfected, say, perspectival painting, right? Which is a painting of a scene as it's viewed from the perspective of an individual observer, right? With a vanishing point and all that. And it's not a coincidence that this culture adopted the novel as a characteristic art form. You go back and Tragedy and epic were forms that were intended to be experienced with other people. They're, they're public art forms. But a novel is read in silence by an individual who is, who is reading. You know, you know, the novel shines a light into the inner life of another person. So you have, a, you have an individual person in silence reading the inner thoughts of another person. It's a profoundly individualistic art form. Our modern political forms enshrine the individual. The architecture of our homes and the layout of our neighborhoods tells you about the nuclear family structure. You, know, you don't have to adopt any particular interpretation of any of these symbols, but the physical and intellectual culture of a society, I think on a very deep level, they're all held together in one great symphony, but each part provides us information about what kind of human beings that culture is trying to grow. That's the approach that I take to historical and cultural phenomena. And it might be insufficiently rigorous for some people, maybe, but, you know, uh, I'm not a historian, and it's a lot more fun. So, uh, you know, here's the thing. Eventually, you just start to notice little things. 
You, know, you notice that the early European poets of Beowulf, for example, seem to have a lot more in common with the Greeks of Homer than they do with the Romans as we find them in Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, even though you know those latter writers are much closer to the writers of Beowulf than, than the Homeric writers were. Meanwhile, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, you, you can read those today, and their mentality is so, so, so recognizable that they might as well have been reading it last week. You know, it's as if both cultures, the classical Greco-Roman and the West European, have independent life courses, and that they're more similar to each other at each stage than they are to themselves at different stages, right? And the way that two children are more similar to one another than they are to the future adult versions of themselves. And I should say again that um, I hope this series, this series has got to be interpreted as an impressionistic work, okay? Not as a pursuit of axioms or historical law. You know, we're, we're going to do a lot of speculating and playing around with ideas and kind of throwing things out there and batting them around. We'll see what happens. Um, you can't understand history through law. Dead forms can be described by law, but living systems have to be understood by analogy. Understanding living systems always has this element of participation involved, right? Of, of having a feel for it. We have a tendency to want to reduce everything down to a list of rules, but it just doesn't work like that with a system that's still in the process of becoming. And so when talking about a people like the Aztecs, one of the unfortunate historical situations where Christians got their grimy mitts on another people's library before anyone got a chance to copy it down, so you know we don't have much in the way of direct sources, when, when you're dealing with something like this, we might be able to draw on other historical examples to get some kind of a feel for the character of the society and the individuals that it was creating. We might notice, for example, that the Aztecs were positioned relative to the Maya and the existing Mesoamerican societies similarly in many ways to the way the Romans were positioned relative to the Greeks or the Ottoman Turks to the existing Muslim world to the Americans to old Europe. You know, in each case, you've got an ancient culture of almost unbelievable richness and spontaneous creativity that just seems to spring right out of the earth, throwing out historical novelties so profound that they inspire entire civilizations and they draw in surrounding tribal peoples for participation, right? These young cultures all collapse or exhaust themselves through internecine conflict, and then they're inherited by people that they consider to be kind of rough barbarians. The Greeks exhausted themselves in the Peloponnesian Wars, and Socrates and Euripides were, were well into their project of deconstructing the fundamental institutions and ideas on which Athenian society had been built, when first the Macedonians and then the Romans pretty much just inherited a culture realm that had stood up to imperial threats for centuries, but now could hardly even be bothered to defend itself. Even though, even though the Greeks resented the rule of both the Macedonians and the Romans, they considered it to be vulgar warrior peoples, kind of unworthy of their high culture. When Rome wanted culture, it imported Greeks to provide it for them. I mean, even Roman masterpieces like, like Virgil's Aeneid and Ovid's Metamorphosis are very obviously derivative of Greek forms. Nothing really new in Islamic civilization emerged from the Ottoman Empire, not really, after those tribal warriors come down from the steppe and overwhelm the Muslim world that, you know, very recently devastated by the Mongols. And of course, the United States, this is something that people talk about a lot, you know, like the previous two examples, we're really good at war, 
We're great engineers and builders. We're outstanding administrators. But if we want high culture, what do we do? We look to Europe, whose geopolitical position we inherited after they bled themselves dry in two world wars that left them questioning their own foundations. So this is something that's kind of similar. In the myth of Sisyphus, Camus tells us that the only really important philosophical question is whether or not to commit suicide. The Greeks and Arabs were in a similar navel-gazing period for similar reasons when the younger, simpler, more vigorous Romans and Ottomans came in and said, just like the Americans after World War II, fine, if you guys don't want it, I guess we'll take it. Well, now, the Aztecs were also great engineers, amazing engineers, actually. We're going to talk more about that later, but they were great warriors, great you know, empire administrators, but we don't see much from them in terms of truly novel culture forms. They seem to be doing their best impression of the existing culture forms, just as the Romans kind of aped the Greeks, the Ottomans aped the Abbasids, and the Americans, the European, each of them copying basically what had gone before and making up for the lack of originality through, you know, a sort of vulgar gigantism. Just do more of it. Make it bigger. So I think an idea like this, you know, you can't take it too seriously, but it might give us a way to approach the Aztecs that allows us to extract some understanding that, that isn't immediately available from direct sources. It's just a way of approaching it. Of course, you've got to be careful coming at things this way. You, you can't mistake the map for the territory, and you have to keep in mind that it's just a heuristic, but there is information in there, as long as we can remember that we're dealing with analogies, not laws. It's something that can give us a feel for the thing, not to provide us an instruction manual. Now I'm going to slow things down a little bit and uh, take us into the final stretch of this meandering introduction um, by talking about mythology. One of the most useful ways to triangulate the similarities and differences between cultures is through their mythologies. And so, uh, yeah, I'll spend the rest of the time here talking about that just a bit. So uh, this will lead us into what I'm doing in the next two real episodes uh, nicely, I think. So when you see a mythological motif that seems to be spread across the world and through time, you find it in mythologies and cultures and continents and eras just from front to back through world history. When you see a motif that seems to maintain itself through time and across cultures like that, I think you can be pretty sure that you're dealing with an expression of those primordial human experiences that we were talking about earlier. Or, or at least, if it's not necessarily an expression of them, it doesn't contradict them. It resonates with them. It speaks to them. And the question of whether various mythological complexes developed independently or through a long process of diffusion is something that has divided anthropologists for years. And American scholars usually fall very hard on the side of parallel independent development. But however these similar motifs came to be found in these environments as, as apparently separate as Madagascar and North America, the similarities are certainly there. There are certain things that you find just across the world and throughout time in, in various mythologies, unquestionable similarities. And they point to the possibility that aspects of both the form and the content of these various constellations of symbols, again, resonate with certain features of individual and, and social experience. I mean, what are we to make of a widespread and complicated motif like, like the virgin mother and her son that you find all over the place? Or the primordial dueling brothers, usually one murders the other, that you find that all over the place. Um, 
the conquest and slaying of the great watery serpent by the celestial gods, and then the universe itself built out of its disarticulated corpse. That's all over the place. You know, what do you make of that? Or take, for example, and now I'll appeal to Joseph Campbell, uh, the well-known classical myth of Demeter, Hecate, and Persephone, and the less well-known uh, Indonesian myths and rites of Satine, Rabia, and Hainawele. The 19th century uh, English mythologist Sir James Fraser speaking, or British mythologist, I'm sorry, uh, speaking in support of the idea of cultural diffusion, um, the idea that, that these myths actually spread across the world and weren't developed in similar ways independently. He said that the symbols in play in the classical and Indonesian myths that we're about to talk about were, were so remarkable and, and so exactly similar that they just couldn't be the result of chance and they, they couldn't be the result of what he called the effect of similar causes acting on the similar constitutions of the human mind in different countries and under different skies. He said that's just not possible. They're too close. There has to be a connection here. And so I'll let the American mythologist Joseph Campbell tell the classical version. This is the story of Persephone, Demeter, and Hecate. Quote, Persephone, who was known as Cori, the maiden, or the virgin, was conceived of Zeus. Her mother was Demeter, the Cretan goddess of agriculture and the fruitful soil. So pay attention to that kind of stuff, like what the gods and goddesses particularly are associated with, because it's very important. I'll start over. Quote, Persephone was also known as Cori, the maiden or the virgin. She was conceived of Zeus. Her mother was Demeter, the Cretan goddess of agriculture and of the fruitful soil. And the maiden was playing, we are told, in a meadow, culling flowers with the daughters of Okeanus, the great all-embracing sea. When she spied a glorious plant with hundred blossoms spreading its fragrance all about, which had been sent up expressly to seduce her by the goddess Earth, Gaia, at the behest of Hades, the lord of the underworld. So that when she hurried to pluck its flowers, the earth gaped, and a great god appeared in a chariot of gold, who carried her down into his abyss despite her cries. The god was Hades, lord of the underworld, and in the land of the dead she became his queen. Persephone's cries had been heard only by Demeter, her mother, and Hecate, a goddess of the moon. But when the mother, bereaved, sought to trace her daughter, she found that her footprints had been obliterated by those of a pig. For it had chanced, most curiously, that at the time of Persephone's abduction, a herd of pigs had been rooting in the neighborhood, and the swineherd's name, Eubolius, means the giver of good counsel, and was in earlier times an appellation of the god of the underworld himself. Furthermore, when the earth opened to receive Persephone, those pigs fell into the chasm too, and that, we are told, is why pigs play such an important role in the rites of Demeter and Persephone. In a festival celebrated in memory of the sorrows, and later joy of Demeter and Persephone, suckling pigs were offered in a manner suggestive not only of an earlier human sacrifice, but one of precisely the gruesome kind that we have observed in Africa and among the marined anim of Melanesia. The Greek festival, called Thesmophoria, was exclusively for women, and as Jane Harrison has demonstrated in her Prologomena to the Study of Greek Religion, such women's rights in Greece were pre-Homeric, that is to say, survivals of the earlier, so-called Pelasgian period, when the hieratic Bronze Age civilizations of Crete and Troy were in full flower, and the warrior gods, Zeus and Apollo of the later patriarchal Greeks, had not yet arrived to reduce the power of the great goddess. The women fasted for nine days in memory of the nine days of sorrow of Demeter, 
as she wandered over the earth, holding a long staff-like torch in either hand. Demeter met the moon goddess Hecate, and together they proceeded to the sun god Phoebus, who had seen the maid abducted and could tell them where she was. After which Demeter, in wrath and grief, quit the world of the gods. As an old woman, heavily veiled, she sat for days by a well known as the Well of the Virgin. She served as a nurse in a kingly household near Eleusis, which city then became the greatest sanctuary of her rights in Greece. And she cursed the earth to bear no fruit, either for the man or for gods, for a full year, until, when Zeus and all the deities of Olympus had come to her in vain, one after another begging her to relent, Zeus at last caused Persephone to be released. She had eaten, however, a seed of the pomegranate in the world below, and, as a consequence, would now have to spend one-third of each year with Hades. Embraced and accompanied by both her mother and the goddess Hecate, she returned to Olympus in glory, and, as though by magic, the fields were covered again with flowers and life-giving grain. The seed-time festival of the Thesmophoria lasted three days, and the first day was named Kathados, downgoing, and Anados, upcoming. The second day was called Nesteia, fasting, and the last, Caligenia, fair-born or fair-birth. And it was during the first day that the suckling pigs were thrown, probably alive, into an underground chamber called a Megara, where they were left to rot for a year, the bones from the previous year being carried up to the earth again and placed upon an altar. Figures of serpents and human beings made out of flour and wheat were also thrown into the chasm, or chamber, at this time. And as they say, writes the ancient author to whom we owe our knowledge of this matter, that in and about the chasms are snakes which consume the most part of what is thrown in. Hence, a rattling din is made when the women draw up the remains, and when they replace the remains by those well-known images, in order that the snakes, which they hold to be the guardians of the sanctuaries, may go away. The rites were secret, hence little has been told of them. However, in the widely celebrated and extremely influential mysteries of Eleusis, where the Cathodos and Anodos is of the maiden Persephone was again the central theme, pigs were again important offerings. And there, moreover, a new motif appeared, for the culminating episode in the holy pageant performed in the Hall of Mystics at Eleusis, representing the sorrows of Demeter and the ultimate anodos or return of the, me of the maiden, was the showing of an ear of grain, quote, that great and marvelous mystery of perfect revelation, a cut stalk of grain, as the early Christian bishop Hippolytus described it, forgetting for the nonce, apparently, that the culminating revelation of his own Christian holy mass was a lifted wafer of bread made of the same grain. What could have been the meaning of such a simple act as the lifting of a cut stalk of grain? What is the meaning of the elevated host of the Mass? As in the play logic or dream logic of any traditional religious pageant, the sacred object is to be identified, at least for the moment of the ceremony with the god. The cut stalk is the returned Persephone, who was dead but now liveth in the grain itself. A bronze gong was struck at this moment, a young priestess representing Cory herself appeared, and the pageant terminated with a pine of joy. End quote. Now, the parallels here to the Christian mythology probably don't even need to be stated, but I'll state them anyway. They're pretty unmistakable, right? You've got the virgin Persephone, uh, something that's not mentioned in the part of the story I just told. The virgin Persephone's son, who is conceived in her by her father Zeus, 
Her son was Dionysus. Dionysus is the god of, among other things, bread and wine. Just as Jesus of Nazareth, the transformer of water into wine and the multiplier of loaves of bread, and whose rite, whose primary rite involves the consecration of bread and wine, which are said to transmute into the literal presence of the Lord, just as the cut stalk of grain was to represent the literal presence of Persephone, uh, and he was also the son of the Virgin Mary, just like Dionysus is the son of the Virgin Persephone, and the Father God of Heaven uh, conceived in the Virgin to give birth to this, you know, to this God of bread and wine. Obviously, very, very, you know, clear parallels there. Um, in the Greek instance, it's the maiden mother who descends into the underworld. In the Christian, it's her son, the culture hero, and that's not a neutral difference, but we'll get to that in an episode where it's relevant. In the Greek version, the mother is resurrected as the staple wheat crop. In the Christian version, the son is resurrected as the metaphysical bread of life, right? And even the primordial event that initiated the whole cycle in both stories was the lord of the underworld using a plant to tempt the maiden into his clutches, right? If it feels like we're missing one of the key ingredients to the story, Persephone's mother Demeter is actually associated with serpents. Her chariot is supposed to have been pulled by two serpents, just as the serpent in the garden pulled Eve forward into consciousness and from there mankind into history. From the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian worlds we're talking about here, you move east now. That area of the Aegean Sea and the East Mediterranean uh, mythological complex. We're going to head east over into the Indonesian islands in that cultural complex, and we find an intact myth in West Saram, a large island just west of New Guinea, and very, very similar in structure, as you'll see here in a moment. Um, and uh, except this centers around a maiden called Hainuele, the frond of the cocoa palm. And so I'll go back to Joseph Campbell because nobody tells these stories like he does. Quote. Nine families of mankind came forth in the beginning from Mount Nunusaku, where the people had emerged from clusters of bananas. And these families stopped in West Siram, at a place known as the Nine Dance Grounds, which is in the jungle between Ahiolo and Veraloin. Now there was a man among them whose name was Ameda, meaning dark, black, or night, and neither was he married nor had he children. He went off one day hunting with his dog, and after a little while, the dog smelt a wild pig, which it traced to a pond, into which the animal took flight. But the dog remained on the shore. And the pig, swimming, grew tired and drowned. But the man, who had arrived meanwhile, retrieved it. And he found a coconut on its tusk, though at that time there were no cocoa palms in the world. Returning to his hut, I made a place the nut on a stand and covered it with a cloth bearing a snake design. And they lay down to sleep. And in the night there appeared to him the figure of a man who said, The coconut that you placed upon the stand and covered with a cloth, you must plant in the earth, otherwise it won't grow. So Amada planted the coconut the next morning, and in three days the palm was tall. Again three days and it was bearing blossoms. He climbed the tree to cut the blossoms, from which he wished to prepare himself a drink, but as he cut he slashed his finger, and the blood fell on a leaf. He returned home to bandage his finger, and in three days came back to the palm to find that where the blood on the leaf had mingled with the sap of the cut blossom, the face of someone had appeared. Three days later, the trunk of the person was there, and when he returned again in three days, he found that a little girl had developed from his drop of blood. That night, the same figure of a man appeared to him in a dream. 
Take your cloth with the snake design, he said. Wrap the girl of the cocoa palm in the cloth carefully and carry her home. So the next morning, Amido went with his cloth to the cocoa palm, climbed the tree, and carefully wrapped the little girl. He descended cautiously, took her home, and named her Hanuele. She grew quickly, and in three days was a nubile maiden. But she was not like an ordinary person, for when she would answer the call of nature, her excrement consisted of all sorts of valuable articles, such as dishes and gongs, so that her father became very rich. And about that time there was to be celebrated in the place of the nine dance grounds a great morrow dance, which was to last nine full nights, and the nine families of mankind were all to participate. Now when the people dance the morrow, the women sit in the center, and from there reach betel-nut out to the men, who form in dancing a large ninefold spiral. Hainawele stood in the center of this morrow festival, passing out betel-nut to the men, and at dawn, when the performance ended, all went home to sleep. The second night, the nine families of mankind assembled on the second ground, for when the morrow is celebrated, it must be performed each night at a different place. And once again it was Hainuele who, placed, who was placed in the center to reach betel-nut out to the dancers, but when they asked for it she gave them coral instead, which they all found very nice. The dancers and the others, too, then began pressing in to ask for a betel-nut, and she gave them coral. And so the performance continued until dawn, when they all went home to sleep. The next night the dance was resumed on the third ground, with Hainuele again at the center. But this time she gave beautiful dishes, and everyone present received such a dish. The fourth night she gave bigger dishes, and the, and the fifth great bush knives, the sixth beautifully worked beetle boxes of copper, the seventh golden earrings, and the eighth glorious gongs. The value of the articles thus increased from night to night, and the people thought this thing mysterious. They came together and discussed the matter. They were all extremely jealous that Hainuele could distribute such wealth and decided to kill her. Okay. It's an overreaction, but anyway. The ninth night, therefore, when the girl was again placed in the center of the dance ground to pass out betel-nut, the men dug a deep hole in the area. In the innermost circle of the great ninefold spiral, the men of the Lesiella family were dancing, and in the course of the slowly cycling movement of their spiral, they pressed the maiden Hainuele toward the hole and threw her in. A loud, three-voiced Maro song drowned out her cries. They covered her quickly with earth, and the dancers trampled this down firmly with their steps. They danced on till dawn, when the festival ended and the people returned to their huts. But when the morrow festival ended, Hainuele failed to return. Her father knew that she had been killed. He took nine branches of a certain bush-like plant whose wood is used in the casting of oracles, and with these he reconstructed in his home the nine circles of morrow dancers. Then he knew for certain that Hainuele had been killed in the dancing ground. He took nine fibers of the cocoa palm leaf and went with these to the dance place, struck them one after the other into the earth, and with the ninth came to what had been the innermost circle. When he stuck the ninth fiber into the earth and drew it forth, on it were some of the hairs and blood of Hainuele. He dug up the corpse and cut it into many pieces, which he buried in the whole area about the dancing ground, except for the two arms which he carried to the maiden Satine, the second of the supreme virgin goddesses of West Saram. At the time of the coming into being of mankind, Satine had emerged from an unripe banana, whereas the rest had come from ripe bananas, and now she was the ruler of them all. But the buried portions of Hainuele, meanwhile, were already turning up things that, 
up to that time had never existed anywhere on earth, above all, certain tuberous plants that have been the principal food of the people ever since. Ameda cursed mankind, and the maiden Satine was furious at the people for having killed. So she built on one of the dance grounds a great gate, consisting of a ninefold spiral, like the one formed by the men in the dance. Then she stood on a great log inside this gate, holding in her two hands the two arms of Hainawele. Then, summoning the people, she said to them, Because you have killed, I refuse to live here any more. Today I shall leave you. And so now you must all try to come to me through this gate. Those who succeed will remain people. But to those who fail, something else will happen. Yeah. They tried to come through the spiral gate, but not all succeeded, and everyone who failed was turned into either an animal or a spirit. That is how it came about that pigs, deer, birds, fish, and many spirits inhabit the earth. Before that time, there had only been people. Those, however, who came through walked to Satine, some to the right of the log on which she was standing, others to the left, and as each passed, she struck them with one of Hainawele's arms. Those going left had to jump across five sticks of bamboo, those to the right across nine, and from these two groups, respectively, were derived the tribes known as the Fivers and the Niners. Satine said to them, I am departing today and you will see me no more on this earth. Only when you die will you see me again, yet even then you shall have to accomplish a very difficult journey before you attain me. And with that, she disappeared from the earth. She now dwells on the mountains of the dead, in the southern part of West Saram, and whoever desires to go to her must die. But the way to her mountain leads over eight other mountains, and ever since that day there have not been only men, but spirits and animals on earth, while the tribes of men have often been divided into the fivers and niners." End quote. Now, the third maiden goddess of, of this cycle, Rabia, comes along in another part of this uh, mythology. But you can see certain themes poking their heads through even this fragment, right? You've got a trio of goddesses. There are serpents dancing around the edges of the story. You know, here, it was at the beginning, there was a, a cloth with the design of a snake on it that was supposed to cover the coconut that becomes Hainawele. Um it's associated she she grows she is the fruit of the tree rather than being tempted to eat it in this one but the association is there in the greek you have the two serpents pulling demeter's chariot which you know in another part of their tale she actually assigns to guard her daughter persephone as she hides her out in a cave so uh one of the goddesses is killed an event which is represented very directly in the west saram myth and figuratively in the classical story represented by you know persephone's descent into the underworld and yet the mur the murdered maiden becomes the important foodstuffs that are depended on by the people once she's brought back. Or that you could rather say that that's the form in which she's brought back. So there seems to be uh, a culture complex. Or at least a, a thread possibly interweaved with others, extending from Madagascar north along the coast of Africa, East Africa, cross-pollinating with existing forms in Egypt and the Middle East before moving along the northern shores of the Indian Ocean until we see this constellation of symbols which, although they might be strung together by different narratives or organized differently relative to one another, the, the symbols themselves keep popping up consistently in myths all along this route of human migration. And so, in addition to the symbol systems, you know, there are, there are cultural and linguistic forms that seem to bear out an ancient connection pretty clearly, this, this Austronesian uh, realm, let's say. So, for example, if you want to count to ten in uh, 
Malagasy, the traditional language of Madagascar, you would say Isa, Rua, Tela, Efatra, Limi. That's one through five. If you move along that route to Indonesia and count in Malay, you'll say instead of Isa, Rua, Telu, Efatra, Limi, you'll say Sa, Dua, Tiga, Ampat, Lima. Pretty close. Or you keep going in Javanese, it's Sa, Ru, Telu, Pat, Lima. Very similar. And as the people hopped into their long canoes and, and started to brave the Pacific Ocean, you go out into Polynesia, a place like Samoa, and you're counting off Tasi, Lua, Tolu, Fa, and Lima. So again, take it all the way back to Madagascar, down off the southeastern coast of Africa, and you'll say, again, you'll say Isa, Rua, Telu, Efatra, Limi. We're all the way out in Samoa in the Pacific Ocean. You've got Tasi, Lua, Tolu, Fa, Lima. Very, very similar. This this Austronesian language group, as it's called, it, it transmutes over time, as languages always do. You know, Old English looks and sounds like German Pig Latin to a modern English speaker, but the lineage is very well established. Well, the myths and symbols that structure the culture worlds went along with the language, and they morph and transmute somewhat too, but they maintain a recognizable common structure. And given how deep into history we have to go to locate this migration, we've got to be dealing with a set of motifs that are almost unimaginably ancient, and yet held in mind by traveling human bands and societies as they make their way across the globe. It brings to mind something I read, although I, I can't remember where, um, that cultures always change just enough to allow them to remain the same. can't remember where I heard that, but it's a good saying. Um, you know, humans are, are supposed to have made it to Australia almost... 50, over 50,000 years ago. And in fact, we find a bunch of parallel motifs among the aboriginal tribes like the Aranda in Australia. So, so I mean, these are connections that go way, way, way back. They're things that we share pretty much universally. And they speak to things that we share as human beings. The really ingenious part of, of, of what these people did is how our ancestors altered the symbols over time to better fit their environments and experience while still maintaining the core structure over what had to have been tens of thousands of years. For example, when you start getting out into Polynesia where there are no snakes, right? They've got these, this whole mythological cycle that uh, has snakes at you know various critical points, and now they live in Polynesia and there's no snakes. Uh, they just switched it out with an eel. The, the role of the serpent was just swapped out with an eel. No big deal. You know, in the Polynesian case, you have something like a maiden na uh, named Hina is married or otherwise joined to an eel. And she's again associated with the moon. That three-way constellation between woman, serpent, and moon is found all over the world. The woman is the consort of the serpent, both of them associated with the moon. Um, you, you can go out to southern France, you have something like the Venus of La Salle, which is a Paleolithic carving from 25,000 years ago that uh, was, you know, again, found in southern France. And it shows a, a pregnant woman, an obviously pregnant woman, touching her belly with one hand and holding up a crescent with 13 lines scratched into it. So it's very... I mean, you look at it, it's very obviously demonstrating that there's an awareness that these people had of the connection between the cycles of the moon and the timing of the menstrual cycle, of which there are 13 iterations each year. I mean, it's very obviously pointing to that knowledge. The woman sheds and regenerates her uterine lining as the moon is emptied and refilled with light on the same, on the same time frame. The serpent is renewed by the shedding of its skin. 
And so, you know, there are certain things like that you can point to as to why they might be associated. But you look at the mythologies across the world and there's no question that those three things are frequently associated. The connection between the moon and the tides was also made very early. And, and women break water to inaugurate their labors. So you have that. You've got the waving uh, motion of the serpent that could be associated with the water. The earliest Bronze Age mythologies seem to have venerated this mythological cycle and revered the goddess mother primarily. But when the patriarchal warriors of the Aryan steppe and the Semitic desert conquered uh, the, these Bronze Age civilizations, they inverted that symbol system to create the mother serpent of the primordial sea, such as Leviathan or Tiamat, representatives of blind, unconscious nature and darkness and chaos, and who, once the gods ordered that there must be light, you know, uh, in consciousness looked out and surveilled the world, uh, those those mother goddess serpents, you know, the, the dark, watery, moon-associated mother goddess uh, were slaughtered and order was created by the conscious rearrangement of their remains. Or in the classical world, where we find a figure like Medusa, the snake woman who is associated with the moon and who in her original form wore a mask painted red to represent the mysterious power of menstrual blood. I mean, these things are all over the place. Sometimes you have them combined into one person. Like Medusa, you have the, the goddess, the snakes, who's associated with the moon, all condensed down to one thing. And that's the way you have to be able to read mythology. If you see say, a, a virgin mother, and then the father god, right? Something we see in Christianity and uh, in Egypt with Isis and Osiris and Horus and all these things. You have to look at that as a united symbol. There are things you can pull apart from them, and that's, you know, that's why they are pulled apart in some stories, but to emphasize certain aspects of each. But that thing by itself, all of those things together is a symbol, and you have to be able to look at it that way too. You find something very similar as you keep on going out into India, where Indo-European warriors swept down to conquer the existing Dravidian peoples, and the parallels between Medusa uh, on one hand and the Indian goddess Kali are completely unmistakable, down to tight details. I mean, um, you know, we read that uh, Asclepius, the god of healing in ancient Greece, is supposed to have taken blood from Medusa after she was killed, drawing some blood from her left side and some from her right. And the blood from her left is supposed to have, have, uh, have had the power to kill, while the blood from her right side is supposed to have had the power to cure and revive from death. Meanwhile, Kali, the Hindu goddess of the new moon, who is the consort of the serpent god Shiva, mirrors Medusa in virtually all of her representations by brandishing a death-dealing sword in her left hand and a gift or boon of some kind in her right hand. And so, I mean, there's, there's, it's so exact and so specific that there's clearly some kind of a connection there. Otherwise you have to otherwise you have to go down the road of thinking that there are innate structures in our human mind that that give rise to to just ideas and concepts that are that are so exactly similar that you know I, again there there are people who who believe either way on those and and probably some uh we're going to explore this really deeply. It's going to be the topic of an entire episode, you know, this mythological complex that goes up and west into Europe. The other one heads east through, you know, uh, Indonesia out into Polynesia and through India, China, and over into the New World. And eventually they go opposite ways around the world and they crash into each other. And we're going to trace those out, uh, not in the next episode, but in the one after that. We're going to go real deep on this stuff. So 
Um, if you like mythology, you'll like that. If you don't, you might want to skip that one. But I, I think you'll like it, even if you don't think you'll like mythology, because there's a lot of a lot of deep stuff that uh, ties over into other uh, historical topics. You know, there are, there are these matching mythological motifs across continents and through the millennia, and as we'll see in that episode. The, the Spanish found so many direct corollaries to their Christian practices and doctrines and Aztec rituals uh, and beliefs that they actually thought for certain that the devil was throwing up a mocking parody of their faith in the new world. And so how do you explain something like that without appealing to his, either historical migrations of peoples, which means that there's, there's some really deep way in which all of the peoples who have absorbed some kind of a, 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 one of these connected mythologies are very similar. You know, if, if you accept the fact that we start with a basic operating system, but then culture does most of the work of turning us into certain kinds of human beings, there are certain ways in, in which these mythologies have created us that, that lay the groundwork for a universal ability to communicate with one another and to understand one another. And yet... As we see when the Spanish confront the Aztecs, I mean, these things can, can really go... You know, by the time you get up to the top of that pyramid, you can be talking about, you know, ideas that are very, very different, manifest in very different ways. Right? I mean, you know, again, it's... it's you can talk about it as the historical migration of peoples or by insisting upon shared psychological and sociological structures that, that lead men throughout the ages to respond to common challenges in certain ways. But however these specific motifs and representations made their way across the earth uh, or whether they popped up independently, you know, they, they have to be grafted on to individual humans and societies that weren't going to reject them or just relegate them to the level of folk tales and popular stories, which all of these cultures also had. It's not like a story just shows up on their cultural border and they just work it into their religion because why not? It's, they had folk tales. They had popular stories that were just entertainment and all that stuff. So for things to get worked into their mythology, into their rites and rituals and their, and their ritual calendar and all that, you know, you know, these things, they built their entire culture around these stories. And so there's something in there that is resonating with something that all of them share. You know, there's really powerful evidence of the diffusion of motifs geographically over time in a way that unites the Mesoamericans, if only by a tiny thread, to the conquistadors that invaded them from the Eastern Sea. Again, I'm going to have a whole episode to suss out the roots, the shared roots of those two mythologies, building very different structures upon the same foundations. But those who are looking for psychological or sociological or environmental causes of similar parallel development independently are also, there, there are strong arguments for that position as well. There's a reason that it's still ongoing. And so to wrap up this introduction, because again, that's all this really is, um, I'll, I'm going to leave you with a curious case of the parallel development, um, maybe a counterpoint to the diffusion idea curious case of, of parallel development of a mythological behavior so similar in form and content that it's uncanny, but which we can be absolutely sure was not spread through migration or cultural mixing. So um, I'm pulling this from the subject of the next episode, uh, which I'll have out shortly. I'm already, I'm already pretty far into it. Uh, the subject of the next episode is the, what the Mesoamericans are most famous for, human sacrifice. Uh, the wonderful, uh, if problematic, old book by Sir James Fraser, the guy we mentioned earlier, 
uh, which if you've ever seen Apocalypse Now, it's on the bookshelf of Colonel Kurtz as he and the bull are being sacrificed in the penultimate scene of that film. It's a book called The Golden Bough, and he draws from the account of uh, he, he draws an account of an Aztec ritual provided by the Spanish friar Bernardino de Sahagun. So I'll go ahead and quote it for you here. At a great festival in September, which was preceded by a strict fast of seven days, they sanctified a young slave girl of twelve or thirteen years, the prettiest they could find, to represent the maize goddess, Chico Mecahuatl. They invested her with the ornaments of the goddess, putting a mitre on her head and the maize cobs around her neck and in her hands, and fastening a green feather upright on the crown of her head to imitate an ear of maize. This they did, we are told, in order to signify that the maize was almost ripe at the time of the festival, but because it was still tender, they chose a girl of tender years to play the part of the maize goddess. The whole day long, they led the poor child in all her finery, with the green plume nodding on her head from house to house, dancing merrily to cheer people after the dullness and privations of the fast. In the evening, all the people assembled at the temple, the courts of which they lit up by a multitude of lanterns and candles. There they passed the night without sleeping, and at midnight, while trumpets, flutes, and horns discoursed solemn music, a portable framework, or palanquin, was brought forth, bedecked with festoons of maize cobs and peppers, and filled with seeds of all sorts. This the bearers set down at the door of the chamber in which the woman, uh, the wooden image of the goddess stood. Now the chamber was adorned and wreathed, both outside and inside, with wreaths of maize cobs, peppers, pumpkins, roses, and seeds of every kind, a wonder to behold. The whole floor was covered deep with these verdant offerings of the pious. When the music ceased, a solemn procession came forth of priests and dignitaries, with flaring lights and smoking censers, leading, the mid in, leading in their midst the girl who played the part of the goddess. Then they made her mount the framework, where she stood upright on the maize and peppers and pumpkins with which it was strewn, her hands resting on the two banisters to keep her from falling. Then the priests swung the smoking censers around her, and the music struck up again, and while it played, a great dignitary of the temple suddenly stepped forth to her with a razor in his hand, and adroitly shore off the green feather she wore on her head, together with the hair on which it was fastened, snipping the lock off by the root. The feather and the hair he then presented to the wooden image of the goddess with great solemnity and elaborate ceremony, weeping and giving her thanks for the fruits of the earth, and the abundant crops which she had bestowed on the people that year. And as he wept and prayed, all the people, standing in the court of the temple, wept and prayed with him. When that ceremony was over, the girl descended from the framework and was escorted to the place where she was to spend the rest of the night. But all the people kept watch in the courts of the temple by the light of torches till the break of day. The morning being come, and the courts of the temple being still crowded by the multitude, who would have deemed it sacrilege to quit the precincts. The priests again brought forth the damsel attired in the costume of the goddess, with the mitre on her head and the cobs of maize about her neck. Again she mounted the portable framework or palanquin and stood on top of it, supporting herself by her hands on the banisters. Then the elders of the temple lifted it on their shoulders, and while some swung burning censers, and others played on instruments or sang, they carried it in the procession through the great courtyard to the hall of the god Huitzilopochtli, and then back to the chamber, where stood the wooden image of the maize goddess, whom the girl impersonated. There they caused the damsel to descend from the palanquin, 
and to stand on the heaps of corn and vegetables that had been spread in profusion on the floor of the sacred chamber. While she stood there, all the elders and nobles came in a line, one behind the other, carrying saucers full of dry and clotted blood, which they had drawn from their ears by way of penance during the seven days' fast. One by one they squatted on their haunches before her, which was the equivalent of falling on their knees with us, and scraping the crust of blood from the saucer cast it down from before her, cast it down before her as an offering in return for the benefits which she, as an embodiment of the maize goddess, had conferred upon them. When the men had thus humbly offered their blood to the human representative of the goddess, the women, forming a long line, did so likewise, each of them dropping on her hams before the girl and scraping her blood from the saucer. The ceremony lasted a long time, for great and small, young and old, all without exception had to pass before the incarnate deity and make their offering. When it was over, the people returned home with glad hearts to feast on flesh and vines of every kind, as merrily, we are told, as good Christians at Easter partake of meat and other carnal mercies after the long abstinence of Lent. And when they had eaten and drunk their fill, and rested after the night watch, they returned quite refreshed to the temple to see the end of the festival. And the end of the festival was this. The multitude being assembled, the priests solemnly incensed the girl who impersonated the goddess. They then threw her on her back on a heap of corn and seeds, cut off her head, caught the gushing blood in a tub, and sprinkled the blood on the wooden image of the goddess, the walls of the chamber, and the offerings of corn, peppers, pumpkins, seeds, and vegetables which cumbered the floor. After that, they flayed the headless trunk, and one of the priests made shift to squeeze himself into her bloody skin. Having done so, they clad him in all the robes which the girl had worn. They put a mitre on his head, the necklace of golden maize cobs about his neck, and the maize cobs of feathers and gold in his hands, and thus arrayed they led him forth in public, all of them dancing to the tuck of drum, while he acted as fugleman, skipping and posturing at the head of the procession as briskly as he could be expected to do, incommoded as he was by the tight and clammy skin of the girl and by her clothes, which must have been far too small for a grown man. End quote. Absent from that account, but confirmed in other sources, is the fact that the nourishing mother goddess here represented and sacrificed was also associated with the moon. And the night of the festival, the night before the killing, flaying, and dancing in the skin of the girl, was always one that had a full moon. So, you know, you, you think about, you hear about something like that, and again, it's easy to look at it behaviorally. What I want to focus on is the fact that there is a there is an in, internal subjective experience that goes along with that and i don't think it's anything alike if you just took look <laughs> nobody is just going to take you or me and put you in a place where you're going to cut a young girl's head off skin her in public wear her skin and her clothes and dance around leading a procession in public and everybody is completely in on this and it's, it's fine like you're not going to be just the person you are now who, who experiences the world as you do now, except that you also do that thing. That's just not how it works. You're talking about a different type of human being here. And how different? I mean, I, there's another story that I'm going to share with you, and with this we'll wrap it up. This story comes to us from the state of Wisconsin in the United States in the 1950s. An old 
dilapidated farm, run down beyond use and no longer productive, inhabited by a single middle-aged, uneducated, unworldly recluse of a man who had hardly ever left the property since he was a child. He'd grown up with an unhealthy obsession with his extremely overbearing mother, and when she died in his middle age, he was just, it completely wrecked him. He was completely destroyed. He sealed off most of the house so that even as the areas he inhabited and the outside fell into complete entropy and chaos, his mother's rooms upstairs and the parlor and living room that she used were exactly the same as the day she died. You may have heard of this guy. His name was Ed Gein. He's one of the most famous murderers in American history. Uh, he's the guy on whom the character Norman Bates in Hitchcock's movie Psycho and James Gum in Silence of the Lambs was based. So the investigation of a murdered hardware store clerk lead police to Ed Gein's farm. Someone had seen him there that morning. And at his farm, they find this charnel house of depravity that is almost impossible to wrap our minds around without venturing dangerously close dangerously close to whichever abyss Ed Gein had fallen into. Gein had been exhuming graves and taking body parts back to his house for a long time. On his bed, they found skulls attached to the tops of the bedposts. In the kitchen, they found bowls made from the sawn-off tops of human skulls. There was a wastebasket made of human skin there were masks made from peeled human faces. He'd made a belt of human nipples, and, and a pair of lips were hanging from the drawstring of a window shade. I'm not trying to just gross you out, but I'm kind of laying the groundwork here. Gain would always choose nights with a full moon to do his dirty work, and you could say maybe he needed the light, but uh, it's still interesting, right? Um, he, he said that he felt driven, as if from the outside... In a daze-like state, he said, he, he would a full moon would come and he would just be overcome by a kind of trance and he would just feel driven from the outside to the graveyard and come back with his trophies. You know, the loss of Gein's mother, from whom he had utterly failed to liberate himself psychologically. He, he'd fallen back into total psychological dependency rather than successfully you know, traversing that gap that we mentioned earlier and, and taking on an independent life. So when she died, he was completely broken and, and he was searching compulsively, as compulsively as a self-harming teenager cuts herself or, or a bulimic binges and purges, you know, where knowing but not knowing what they're doing, aware on some level of their actions and, and always aware of what they're doing, but waking up after it's over kind of in a new state, like that patient of Oliver Sacks who felt like he'd only just awakened into consciousness. He's compulsively searching for a way to reconnect with his mother. And so perhaps you're aware of the most infamous part of the story of this, this guy, the butcher of Plainfield. Digging up, and murder, digging up bodies and murdering women that he thought resembled his mother, Ed Gein skinned the women, and he made himself a woman's suit, complete with real breasts. And on certain nights, always under a full moon, Gein would put the suit on, dress as a woman, even putting, it's disgusting, but putting cut-out vulvas into panties that he would wear. And he would go out under the moon and pretend to incarnate the great mother goddess of his life, spinning around and waving his arms, dancing under the full moon as his mother. Now, Gein was a secluded farm boy from 
1950s Wisconsin, and there is absolutely no reason to believe that he'd ever heard of the Aztec ritual in which a priest wore the skin of the bountiful mother goddess dancing in it during the dawn after a full moon. And so if you've got a theory on that, you feel free to send it over on the Facebook page. Otherwise, we'll pull it apart together in the next episode, the first real episode, when we'll try to get to the bottom of human sacrifice. Thanks, guys. <laughs>